0: Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and boy, do we have a lot of news to cover. Uh, I had so many, so many different things bookmarked that I wanted to bring up today, and I'm just going to be able to cover some of them. Uh, so uh, maybe we'll get to some of them in future. Um, I hope you really enjoyed the the dual two part interview with Haley Sukiyama from the EFF about the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, that was very interesting, I thought. And if you didn't, if you missed that, you might want to go back and check that out. Uh, but today we're gonna we're gonna cover some new stuff. So we're gonna talk a little bit about some more Windows update problems. Uh, we're talking about Ford sharing driving data, and I'm sure they're not the only ones. I got a kind of a funny story about a robot lawyer that will help you sue data brokers. That's an interesting one. Got a couple browser updates. We're gonna talk about some interesting stuff that the Brave browser is doing to help guard your privacy online, and a new plugin from Firefox that purports to uh, keep all your Facebook data more contained and stop them from. Uh, slurping up as much data as they do. And then finally, we're going to get to some more serious stuff. And uh, you know, obviously, right now, the COVID-19 virus is on everybody's mind. Uh, there's almost no choice, since at this point, most of us are probably quarant well, not quarantined, but at least told to shelter in place and stay home and all that stuff, which is very good advice. Uh, and we'll get into some of that here in a minute. But of course, never let a crisis go to waste, as... I that was accredited to Rahm Emanuel back in the Obama days, and it was picked up on in a book called The Shock Doctrine, which I still want to read by Naomi Klein. Uh, But anyway, the point of that being, and by the way, he wasn't the first person to say that, you know, when there's a crisis going on, you know, use that opportunity to further your political aspirations or whatever the case may be. And we're going to see you know how that's kind of been happening in in several ways so we're going to end up with a few stories around that so let's not wait any longer let's get into the news okay first up I'm not going to talk about this too much but if you're a Windows 10 user then I'm sure you've experienced this already windows has had a really rough year so far <laughs> Uh, they have their what they call their Patch Tuesday, which is the second Tuesday of every month, and that's their monthly software release, which you know usually is uh, security stuff, mostly bug fixes, and uh, sometimes some features too. Uh, they, those those kind of come in bigger chunks at other parts of the year, but uh, you know every Tuesday, every second Tuesday of the month, they release security updates for the most part, and there have been several, and as there usually are, uh, but they've not gone well. Uh, some of the update processes have been really buggy uh, to the point where some people actually lost all their data. I mean, that's that's about as bad as it gets. But there was another one uh, just recently this month where there was a big security vulnerability that was not patched in Patch Tuesday, and they actually released an out-of-cycle fix for that uh, to try to protect people because they didn't, you know, they didn't want it to go another month, wait another month before getting that fixed in case it's, you know the bad guys started exploiting it all that is to say that windows has been struggling and i know that i always recommend that you stay up to date on software and i this does not change my mind uh on that uh policy but the only thing i might say uh to you know to mitigate some of these issues that we've been having recently and apple has had some issues too uh let's be fair um is to you know, just wait a few days uh on some of these now you know if there's if there's something comes up where it you know that it's so critical that you need to do it right away um, I will say so. But of course, since this is a once a week podcast, you're not going to necessarily hear that in the time you need to hear it. So if you want to follow me on Twitter uh, at Firewall Dragons, you know, that's kind of where I try to do the more timely stuff. But anyway, so the general policy, I fo- and I follow this myself, is I always update, but I don't always update the same day, uh, especially when when the, you know, the track, record, track record gets kind of spotty. Now of course this month there was there was uh, as far as I know the patch Tuesday update was okay it was just the fact that they missed they missed a glaring security bug that they had to release an out of band uh, update for um, but anyway if if you can and you may not be able to, to do anything but postpone if you have Windows 10 home and you did took the free upgrade I think you I think you're required to take all security updates uh, from Microsoft which again as a policy, that's a great way to go. You need to stay up to date because there definitely are bugs that are being patched. And some of them are really bad, but you know, you might have the opportunity to postpone that, you know, maybe get a pop-up and say, you know, I don't want to do that just now and keep your ear open either on this show or on my Twitter account or elsewhere, you know, for problems with that. And and actually, if you wait long enough, Microsoft, if there's a problem with it, Microsoft will usually pull the update. uh, So you won't have to worry about it. So, you know, the, the insurance policy is maybe to wait a couple of days before you, uh, take that, that, that security patch, just in case there are problems because until it's widely released to a lot of people, uh, despite his, their best effort at testing this stuff before they release it, they still, they'll still find such a, scenarios where, uh, it doesn't work right. And so, you know, give them a day or two to, to figure that out and get it fixed before you take the updates. Next up, I think I ran across this article on Twitter, uh, from a, a website I'd never been to before called the truth about cars. And it talked about a new program about Ford sharing driving data with all insurance for various reasons. And so uh, let me just, let me just read from the article and then we'll talk about it. Adhering to the latest industry trends, Ford has made a deal with insurer all state to share customer driving data and plans to issue a loyalty credit card tied to its rewards program. While the latter is in the service of retaining customers, The insurance partnership is technically already active. The Blue Oval, which is another name for Ford, is by no means the only automaker involved in such programs. Like other automakers, Ford has already partnered with insurance companies in regional programs aimed at assessing how drivers, customers drive, uh, using the collected information to adjust policies. Originally, this involved devices installed with the customer's consent that transmitted telemetric data to the home base. Later versions were able to use onboard systems in conjunction with a downloadable app. Now, with connected cars becoming the norm, Allstate says it can just get the information directly from vehicles via manufacturer data centers. Reporting from Bloomberg indicates that most Ford and Lincoln models manufactured moving forward will contain embedded modems that will sync directly with Allstate's MileWise program. While largely dependent on the installation of an external device beneath the steering column, the company says that won't be necessary in the future. Framed as a way to help drivers who don't cover a lot of ground to save money, MileWise actually tracks miles-driven, vehicle speed, time of day, specific driving events like sudden braking, and location. While we'd like to assume that information is being handled responsibly, the company is already testing a program that allows clients to see how driving habits affect at a personalized price. We're relatively certain it will receive pushback in relation to the California Consumer Privacy Act, which I just talked about a minute ago, which we talked about last week. Uh, a legislation that's already been complicating the industry's push into data-driven businesses. There's also the consumer advocacy groups and right-to-repair organizations popping up around the country focused on limiting the amount of influence an automaker has on a car after purchase, and who has access to the data amassed while driving. Allstate was recently named one of the world's most ethical companies by Ethosphere, a for-profit company that we've never heard of. It's doubtful that accolade means they'll give you a pass the next time your data profile is flagged for exceeding the posted speed limit or you stop short to avoid crushing a dog. That hardly seems profitable. And then there's a couple quotes here. One's from Ford, uh, from this woman named Carrie Novotny. She's the COO of the Ford Pass program. She says, quote, connected vehicles have the potential to deliver new benefits to Ford customers, including the ability to lower their insurance premiums, unquote. And Allstate is quoted as saying, The agreement with Ford will offer drivers the ability to control and customize their auto insurance policy like never before. So there was more to this article, and I'll just stop there. So you know where I'm going with this, right? So this is a privacy situation. And yes, of course, if Allstate, if your car insurance company knew everything you did in your car, where you went, how fast you went, how often you drove, how many miles you went, uh, how often you had sudden braking situations, you know, they could put that into some algorithm and come up with a a better idea of how risky you are as a customer to insure. And assuming that you're not a risky customer, that's great, right? That would potentially mean that you've proven you're a good driver and you don't do dangerous things and therefore they can lower your insurance rate. And of course, if if you're not a good driver, that means your rates could potentially go up. I mean, mean, they could potentially drop you. These are state by state laws. I don't know that every state's the same, but I do know that there are certain situations where insurers are allowed to just drop you as a client and not insure you at all. And who knows if that data is somehow shared with some other data brokers and that might, you know, that might make it difficult for you to get you to get car insurance anywhere, but it's well beyond that, right? So here's these cars, Again, it used to be, and I saw commercials for these things myself, and I just shook my head when I saw them, where you could get this little device that you would install in your car, and it would track how you drove. All these things I'm talking about now, but it was voluntary. You actually had to go seek out this device from your insurer. They would give it to you and show you how to install it, and you knew it was there. And if you ever wanted to take it out, you could take it out. That is no longer the case. Cars today are connected. They're, they're part of the IoT system now, the Internet of Things. And they are coming with built-in cellular modems so that they are constantly in contact with the cloud. And while this article is about Ford, I am certain that other car manufacturers are doing the exact same thing. And again, this has potential benefits. If you, if the, the car your car today is a massive computer filled with sensors and it knows... When you've been in an accident, or is pretty darn sure you've been in an accident, it can look at the accelerometers and sudden braking, and and all sorts of different things to determine. I mean, that's one of the reasons. That's one of the ways it figures out when to fire your um, airbags, right? It, it it detects within milliseconds that something very bad is happening, and pops up these balloons to protect you as you careen around inside your car. That's all good, but the problem is we don't at this point when it's built into the car. And I'm sure that when you bought the car, you'd sign the contract somewhere buried in that legalese in those huge documents is a thing saying, hey, by the way, you acknowledge by signing this that we're monitoring everything you do and selling it to third parties, which in this case, Ford would be selling to Allstate. And perhaps, who knows what other data brokers might want access to this information, right? And okay, so you've heard me go on about this before. So, anyway, we've just got to be very careful about, careful about these things and we need to push back on some of these systems uh, for privacy rights. And if, if they were only using that data in my best interests and not selling it to anyone else, I'd be okay with that. The question, you know, of course there'd be compliance. We'd have to figure out some way to verify that that's true. That's one thing, but you can guarantee in this capitalist society that we live in and the desire to increase shareholder value, that these companies will be looking for other ways to monetize that same data. All right, moving on. This was a funny story uh, that was in Fortune magazine, uh, fortune.com. And it's related to the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act stuff. And so I wanted to read it because I thought it was funny And, and just interesting. It's an interesting commentary on where we are today. So here we go. From the article, it says, in January, a new law gave consumers the power to stop companies collecting their personal information. The law, known as the California Consumer Privacy Act, or the CCPA, can be a powerful tool for privacy, but it comes with a catch. Consumers who want to exercise their CCPA rights must contact every data broker individually, and there are more than 100 of them. And I'll stop right there to say I'm sure there's well more than 100. I've seen articles that say that in the U.S. alone, there's anywhere from, I think it was 2,500 to 4,000, and that article was probably two years old. So anyway, back to the article, it says, but now they have an easier option. On Thursday, a startup called Do Not Pay unveiled a service it calls Digital Health that automates the data deletion process. Priced at $3 a month, the service will contact more than 100 data brokers on your behalf and demand that they delete your and your family's, family's personal information. It will also show you the types of data the brokers have collected, such as a phone number or location info, and even initiate legal proceedings if the firms fail to comply. The monthly fee also gives subscribers access to Do Not Pay's other automated avenging services like appealing parking tickets in any city, claiming compensation for poor in-flight Wi-Fi, and robo-revenge, which sues robocallers. The data deletion service is the latest brainchild of Joshua Browder, who launched Do Not Pay as a way to fight parking tickets when he was a 19-year-old at Stanford University. The startup has been hailed in the media as a time-saving quote-unquote robot lawyer and has reportedly saved consumers over $4 million in fines. In an interview with Fortune, Browder says he was inspired to extend CCPA services to data deletion after receiving numerous robocalls on Christmas Day. Browder says data brokers are a key source of information for robocallers as well as being a threat in their own right. The technology that underlies Do Not Pay's parking ticket and CCPA services are the same, bots. The bots send emails on the customer's behalf and also reply to any follow-up requests companies might send back. In the case of companies who receive CCPA deletion, data deletion requests, they might ask for additional information, such as a photo or a birth date. In such cases, Do Not Pay's robots will contact the customer for the additional data and then use the new information to respond to any other data brokers that make similar requests. And while the CCPA is a state law that technically only covers California residents, many companies are acting as if, the, as if it applies countrywide. And in any case, Browder says Do Not Pay uses a California PO box when it reaches out to companies. Browder also emphasizes that Do Not Pay will never sell consumer data itself, and that the company's own terms of service allow it to be sued if it ever does. He also believes that data brokers are no good for consumers. And here's a quote from him. He says, there's no reason an average person wants one of these privacy brokers to have their data, unquote. So anyway, I thought that was really interesting, but that it, you know, it's funny, but you know, kind of because of what they're doing. But it, it does bring to light one of, the, you know, one of the downsides to the CCPA and some of the other laws is that Just like the whole, you know, opt out culture where all these companies, Facebook, Google, and and so on say, you have the power, you know, like Dorothy's red slippers, you could have gone home at any time, but unlike Dorothy's red slippers, it's not one thing you have to do. Uh, You, you have to, first of all, know about every data broker that has information on you, which is by it already impossible. That is, that is not possible. They these people don't like to be found for a reason. And there's, as, as a human, there's really no way for you to find them. This this service works with 100 data brokers. I'm sure it's because that was the first 100 they could find, or maybe it's the most popular 100. I don't know, but there's well more than 100. And so it just becomes, it doesn't scale, as we like to say in the engineering world. It doesn't scale. If there was one or two things that I needed to opt out of, fine. I could find those one or two things, and I could take it upon myself to opt out of those privacy-violating features assuming that, you know, the language around them was written in a way that makes it clear what they were doing, which is not often the case, but let's just say I could. Unfortunately, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of places where I would need to do this. And that's just, that's just not possible. Even if I knew every place to go, nobody has the time to do that. And these companies all know that. So they get away with saying, we give the power to the user. They can change this whenever they like. When, re- when in reality, that's, it's just not possible. So it's really interesting to me that companies like this have seized upon this, uh, seized upon this situation to try to help people. And of course, I'm sure make some money along the way. Uh, They do charge a fee for this service, but you know, sometimes the only answer for some of these things is to have, you know, have the bots and the automation and the AI working for you instead of working for them. Okay. Next up, and I'm going to go through a couple of these really quickly. I was going to read from the, uh, read from the articles, but I'll just probably, uh, sum them up for you because it's pretty straightforward. And the Brave browser is a browser I've talked about a couple times recently. It's, uh, it's based on Google's Chromium, which is different than Chrome. Chromium is kind of like the, the heart or the engine, uh, for the Chrome browser that Google makes, uh, and it, that engine is actually open source and available to other people. In fact, that engine is used as the base, as the engine for almost every other browser on the planet, every other popular browser on the planet, except for Firefox. Uh, brave is one of the ones that is using this Chromium engine. And it's, so it's kind of like Chrome without the Google part, you know, it doesn't have any of the tracking, the privacy stuff. It's just kind of the, it's the part that does what you need it to do. It takes, it takes the web page and it makes it, and it renders it so you can see it. And it takes your clicks and it takes your form fills and all that stuff. And it does the thing a browser is supposed to do, uh, and nothing more. So anyway, Brave is based on Chromium, which doesn't make it bad. Um, you know, I don't like Chrome. But um, anyway, so Brave is a privacy-focused browser. I mean, I would argue that Firefox is as well, uh, and Safari to some degree uh, as well. But like their whole thing, like their their primary marketing thing is that we are privacy-focused. Uh, and they have done some really great things. And this is another one. So what they've basically done uh, come up with is uh, an anti-fingerprinting technology, and uh, I'll have to stop here to explain that again, real quick. We've talked about it, but uh, one of the main ways previously that you were tracked around the web were cookies, in particular third-party cookies. So you might go to, you know, Yahoo.com or Amazon.com or, or you know one of these other sites, but that web page, as I've said multiple times before, is is a patchwork quilt. It's not all the content you're seeing on that page doesn't come from the site you're going to. That would be the first party. There's a lot of third-party content, usually the ads, and so those ads are like billboards, and they sell they sell access to those spaces somewhere else, and there's some other company that's involved with filling the ads, and the company, the first-party site you're going to probably has no idea what those ads are, and so those ads are what drop cookies. That would be a third-party cookie. That wasn't the site you went to, but because it was that site showing ads from these third parties, that third party could drop a cookie on your on your computer, and whenever you went to any other site with the same advertising network. They would be able to read those cookies and therefore track where you went. That's how most tracking was done until recent years. And then since we've all gotten wise to that and started blocking third party cookies and some by default uh, in Firefox and Safari, for example, they've gone to other more devious, <laughs> trickier technical means by which to recognize you as you traverse the web. And one of these that is extremely hard to block is called fingerprinting. And when you go to websites, your web browser trying to be helpful tells the website you're going to a lot of things about you and your computer like you know how big is your screen you know what are you know what are the pixel dimensions of your screen what are you on a mac or a pc are you what kind of browser are you using what version of the browser are you using what plugins do you have what fonts do you have and many many other things and you know the whole idea being the more they can tell you about you the better that that website can provide you a web Experience that works well for your situation. I mean, think about the difference between a mobile phone and a computer. The screen size is very, very different. So that that's a very common place where knowing that the person looking at your web page is looking at it on an iPhone versus looking on the, on a 27-inch uh, monitor that gives you the opportunity to return a very different web page, one that is meant to be looked at through a very small window versus a large window. But in the process of being helpful, uh, what your your browser can potentially give up a lot of very interesting technical details about you and your and your browser and your computer and all these other things. And taken together as a snapshot, if I look at somebody who's got this exact version of Mac OS running, this exact version of Firefox running, this exact set of fonts installed, this exact set of plugins in that browser, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that paints a pretty unique picture of somebody. The likelihood that someone else is going to have that exact same combination of things is diminishingly small, especially when you get into these really heavy-duty technical techniques they use that aren't, and I'm not going to bother to explain now, uh, that are really hard to stop uh, and are even more unique than those things are. So taken as a whole, all all this information gives you a fingerprint. It gives you some way to be recognized so that when you go to one site and then go to a different site... They can ask the same questions of you in your browser when they do and say, oh, they gave all the same answers. This is probably Carrie again. No, I say Carrie, which they may or may not know it's actually me, but they might at least know that it's the same person that was on this other site. Now, so what Brave is doing, and by the way, Firefox has tried some different things as well, but what Brave is basically doing is uh, instead of like what one thing that Firefox and uh, Safari cr- tried to do is they're trying to limit the amount of information given back, trying to reduce the number of questions that they can ask or maybe kind of making the answers a little bit more vanilla, uh, so that more people will look alike. Uh, but what brave is actually doing, and this is something that I've been saying they should do for a long time is they're basically lying, <laughs> but they're lying in very small, almost imperceptible ways. So because computers are very literal, And they would look at the exact set of fonts and the exact versions or whatever. What Brave is basically saying is, okay, even though this person is using Firefox version 1.2.3, and of course it's much higher than that, um, I'm going to say they're using Firefox version 1.2.0. Oh, but when they go to the next page, I'm going to say it's 1.2.3. And then they'll go to the next one. So I'm going to say it's 1.1.5. And so these are minor things that probably won't affect your experience at all. But by kind of randomizing the data just a little bit, just tweaking at the, at the edges that will throw off all these fingerprinting programs that that one little change would tell the algorithm, this is must be a different person. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. And again, it's this whole, you know, cat and mouse game that we've got going on with, you know, uh, advertisers trying to track us and, you know, intrepid organizations like brave and Firefox and Apple, Doing their best to prevent that from happening without breaking the web in the process. All right, so next up, and this is in a similar vein um, Firefox has come up with what they call a Facebook container. And it's a plugin that you, it doesn't come uh, with Firefox automatically. You have to go get it, but it's a Mozilla, which who makes Firefox? It's a Mozilla plugin that you can install. And, and it's another way to try to keep Facebook from tracking you, particularly offline tracking or, uh, when you're some other the sites that are not Facebook, the idea being, and I've talked about this before too, this idea of containerization, like a, a sandbox, a, a virtual environment within your web browser that is, that is kept separate from, uh, the rest of your tabs or windows in your web browser. And so you get into this Facebook container. And so that way, whenever you go to a, go to facebook.com, it does its best to keep facebook from learning anything outside of that container i know it's a lot more technical than that but that's basically what they're trying to do they're trying to prevent facebook from correlating information uh from inside that container to information outside that container and so i you know obviously i certainly applaud the idea and the effort uh in reality i think it's less useful than that it might sound uh, for instance also you know, if you just use some good privacy protecting plugins like ublock origin or privacy badger uh, more than likely, those are going to go a long way to the same, uh, to have the same effect, and are probably actually more effective. I, I haven't looked, you know, deep, deep into the technology, but my guess is you could, uh, you get much the same thing with that, and it would apply to everything, not just Facebook. And furthermore, most people use Facebook probably on their mobile devices anyway, and this would have no effect whatsoever on that. But I wanted to bring it up because, you know, again, this is. This is that cat and mask, and this is the. These are all the things that people are trying to do to protect your privacy, and you know. It's, so it's worth mentioning, and you know, again, kudos to Firefox for trying and, and for going the extra mile and for trying to protect your privacy. And so, uh, while I personally still recommend Firefox uh, because I think that you know they have the most, the broadest appeal, the the best set of plugins, uh, Brave is really a very interesting option. So uh, you might want to consider that one as well. All right, well, now it's time to get a little heavier, uh, and I want to cover some topics that um, are related to COVID-19. And besides, obviously, the virus itself being a problem, it's opened up the doors for a lot of other people to take advantage of the situation and take advantage of you. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about a couple different angles on this, and one of them is from the EFF, the electronic frontier foundation. And they had this article about protecting civil liberties during a public health crisis. And I'll, before I read this article, I'll give you two, for instances. Um, it was revealed last week or the week before that Israel is going to use a previously undisclosed treasure trove of their citizens, location information. In other words, they had been secretly collecting location, location information on, on its citizens, probably through their mobile phones uh, and hadn't told anybody about it. Uh, but when the virus popped up, they said, Hey, you know what? Turns out <laughs> we've got this database. Let's keep a track of everybody. And you know what? We're going to use that for, for, for good. We're going to use that to try to, to track the virus and people that have the virus and where they may have gone and who they may have come in contact with, you know, to try to stop the spread or at least understand the spread of the disease and yada, yada, yada. Not to be outdone. The United States is also considering at least uh, publicly and hopefully before the fact, not after the fact, uh, of doing similar data collection and location information to try to, again, uh, you know, obviously this, this virus is bad. We, you know, these are potentially very powerful tools in monitoring and potentially stopping the spread of the virus. But of course, it's not too hard to understand how these exact same technologies with the best interests at heart could be subverted and or used for other purposes beyond the original. So uh, let me just read. So this, this article is actually a long one. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is EFF says roughly the same thing. And that is, you know, while it's understood that we need to protect our citizens and, you know, that some of these technological solutions may help. Uh, we need to be very careful about how we do them. And they recommended five in particular things that we should try to do for any such technological solution that we come up with. And I just wanted to read those because I thought it was uh, insightful. So in this article, they say, any data collection and digital monitoring of potential carriers of COVID-19 should take into consideration and commit to these principles. First, Privacy intrusions must be necessary and proportionate. A program that collects, en masse, identifiable information about people must be scientifically justified and deemed necessary by public health experts for the purpose of containment, and that data processing must be proportionate to the need. For example, maintenance of 10 years of travel history of all people would not be proportionate to the need to contain a disease like COVID-19, which has a two-week incubation period. 2. Data collection based on science, not bias. Given the global scope of communicable diseases, there is a historical precedent for improper government containment efforts driven by bias based on nationality, ethnicity, religion, and race, rather than facts about a particular individual's actual likelihood of contracting the virus, such as their travel history or contact with potentially infected people. Today, we must ensure that any automated data systems used to contain COVID-19 do not erroneously identify members of specific demographic groups as particularly susceptible to infection. 3. Expiration As in other major emergencies in the past, there is a hazard that the data surveillance infrastructure we build to contain COVID-19 may long outlive the crisis it was intended to address. The government and its corporate cooperators must roll back any invasive programs created in the name of public health after crisis has been contained. All right, number four, transparency. Any government use of big data to track virus spread must be clearly and quickly explained to the public. This includes publication of detailed information about the information being gathered, the retention period for the information, the tools used to process that information, the ways these tools guide public health decisions, and whether these tools have had any positive or negative outcomes. And that last one, by the way, is important. And so it's not enough to have good intentions. It's also important that we actually look at what we did and see if it actually made a difference. So next time this happens, if we did a lot of things under the best of intentions, even with all the downsides, if there were no upsides, there's no point of doing it again next time. All right. And finally, five, they say due process. If the government seeks to limit a person's rights based on this big data surveillance, for example, to quarantine them based on the system's conclusions about their relationships or travel, then the person must have the opportunity to timely and fairly challenge these conclusions and limits. So you recognize behind a lot of these things, a lot of the same thoughts and concerns that went into building the Bill of Rights. Um, you know, our government, even with the best intentions, must have some limits and we need due process and we need transparency. So, uh, I think this is good. And it's, you know, this is not the EFF come out and saying, you can't do this. This is, it's not worth it. We shouldn't do this at all. They're saying, look, we understand it, we see the value of this. It's obviously a public health emergency. Uh, but if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And, uh, these are kind of some guidelines that they put out that I think make really good sense. And so as you hear our politicians, you know, come out and say, we have to do this for your own, for your own good, keep these things in mind and, um, you know, challenge them, uh, on each of these kind of areas, you know, in particular, to make sure that when this is all over, that that data is thrown out and these systems are dismantled. All right. Next up, there's another thing going on right now that's not actually technically related to the virus, but it seems kind of I don't know convenient that this is going on right now and when we're all kind of distracted by the virus. And there's a new law being proposed called Earn It, which of course is what we call a retronym, meaning that. You know, they kind of reverse fit the the English language words that, you know, for the acronym to something, you know, something with marketing appeal that's easy to say. So anyway, EARNIT, E-A-R-N-I-T, stands for the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. And what this bill purports to do is to give law enforcement more say in how companies do what they do in order to allow them to properly investigate and prosecute online child abuse. And of course, that is something that we need to do. That is an abhorrent practice that, I, that nobody can justify and or understand. I don't, I don't get it. That's something that absolutely needs to be stopped. And we need to zealously uh, investigate and prosecute anybody who does this. But in the name of doing this, you know, this is common. They've done it for a lot of other reasons. You know, think of the children with best intentions, hopefully. Um, and, And this one, I think it's very thinly veiled, not, but they're using this, a very, very sympathetic case, obviously, in order to slip in some rather scary powers that will be given to an unelected committee and the U.S. Attorney General. So uh, normally at this point I would read from the Electronic Frontier Foundation but in the essence of uh, or but in the spirit of uh diversity I thought I'd at least try to you know go for somebody else this time <laughs> and uh this is from Fight for the Future. Uh they're doing some good stuff too. But anyway, they've on their action take action page, they've got a short summary of what they believe is going on here and I'll read that and then I'll discuss it. Today and today in this case would have, I think be March uh, early March. So this, is, this has been a little bit of time ago. March 6th, I think, is actually what today refers to here. Today, Senators Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, released the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act, or EARN IT Act for short. The digital rights group Fight for the Future has already responded by rallying more than 12,000 people to oppose this dangerous legislation. If passed into law, the Earned Act would give the Attorney General sweeping powers to establish and enforce a set of quote-unquote best practices that tech companies must follow to protect minors from sexual exploitation online. But let's be very clear. This bill will make all of us, including children, less safe, not more safe. You see, the EARN it Act deliberately fails to define the specific best practices tech, tech companies must follow, allowing the Attorney General to effectively change the law with little or no oversight from Congress. Any company that refuses to comply with the Attorney General's demands could lose important legal protections provided by CDA 230, and CDA stands for the Communications Decency Act, and 230 is Section 230 of that bill, which has been uh, the center of a lot of controversy, but we'll get back to that separately, and probably probably in another show. Anyway, it says... I'll just start that sentence again since I broke it up so badly. Any company that refuses to comply with the Attorney General's demands could lose important legal protections provided by CDA 230, putting the company at risk of crippling lawsuits and criminal prosecution. In practice, this means that the Attorney General can determine what happens on digital platforms and threaten to shut them down if they don't obey. Lindsey Graham and Attorney General William Barr have both spoken out against tech companies that use digital encryption systems to keep people safe from hacking, data breaches, and government surveillance, and the EARNIT Act seems tailor-made to grant them the authority to effectively kill digital encryption. But the EARNIT Act is written so broadly that it could also be used to force tech companies to validate identities, retain communications, and even restrict access to content. Fight for the Future has launched an online petition. And here's a quote from somebody named Evan Greer, who's uh, the deputy director of Fight for the Future. And he says, quote, The EARNIT Act will make children less safe, not more safe. Encryption protects our airports, power plants, and water treatment facilities that our children drink from. This bill sets the stage for backdoors and encryption that put everyone in danger and potentially opens the floodgates for widespread internet censorship in the process. This is one of the most misguided pieces of internet legislation we've seen in a decade. So again, uh, I know this is a controversial topic, especially, uh, you know, these are very sympathetic cases. These are very sympathetic reasons for wanting to, you know, have such authority. The act itself, if you read it, and I didn't read the whole thing, but I did search for the word encryption, doesn't appear anywhere in the 65 pages of the bill. Uh, a point which actually Senator Blumenthal made a, made made clear uh, in one of the hearings on this, but that just makes it all the more all the more sneaky because basically what they're really doing is, it's a very indirect way. What they're basically saying is, we want to stop child abuse online. Obviously, a noble goal. To do that, you empower the Attorney General to appoint a council, a committee, to look at best practices. And the people on that committee are invariably going to be loaded with law enforcement and other sympathetic people or people from sympathetic organizations to come up with a list of best practices. And the attorney general will then be allowed to basically enforce these best practices. And if for any company, Google, Facebook, Twitter, any of these, any company, any online presence that does not follow these best practices will then be open to, uh, you know, horrible lawsuits and you know other types of prosecution, because they allowed child abuse communications of any sort to pass through them without being able to record it. That's kind of the summary of what's going on here, and the problem is that that you know those best intentions will pave the road to privacy hell and so it's really hard to you know to come out and say that you know <laughs> that any any effort to block you know online child exploitation shouldn't be considered, but this you know. This is one of those cases where we got to be very careful of how we do things and keep the bigger picture in mind in terms of civil liberties and you know how far we go to to accomplish these goals. All right, next up, some more sobering some more sobering stuff but probably a lot less controversial. Um with COVID-19 going around, there's been all sorts of people trying to take advantage of that and uh certainly, you know, people's desire to get all the latest information, you know, where is the where is the virus? how many people are dead today? What are the trends looking like over time? Where are the hotspots in the world? We've all seen the, you know, the the worldwide charts that show these big red dots over all the places where all the outbreaks have occurred. And we have watched that change over the days and, you know, very worryingly as these dots get bigger and and spread wider. And, you know, so there's understandably a lot of stress around this virus. And, you know, bad guys are never one to pass up the opportunity to use things like this, scary things like this to their advantage. And so there have been a lot of very, you know, a lot of fake websites um, that may, you know, they may have actual information routed from somewhere else uh, about the virus. But when you go to these websites, they, you know, maybe trick you into uh, downloading software that you shouldn't or giving away uh, personal information that you shouldn't. Uh, And I'm going to read a short article here from Ars Technica. Uh, talking about a couple of these things. And then I'm going to talk about one more that's that's even worse. So anyway, from Ars Technical, it says, emails and websites are promising vital information about keeping safe from the corona pandemic that's sweeping the globe and threatening millions. In fact, a flood of them are scams that push malware, ransomware, and disinformation, attempt to steal passwords and personal information, and conduct espionage operations by hackers working for nation states. One of the most recent cor- coronavirus hoaxes To come to light, is an Android app available at coronavirusapp.site. It claims to provide access to a map that provides real-time virus tracking and and information, including heat map visuals and statistics. In fact, a researcher from Domain Tools said the app is laced with ransomware. And this is a quote from the guy uh, at Domain Tools. He says, this Android ransomware application, previously unseen in the wild, has been titled COVID lock because of the malware's capabilities and its background story. COVID lock uses techniques to deny the victim access to their phone by forcing a change in the password used to unlock the phone. This is also known as a screen lock attack and has been seen before on Android ransomware. COVID lock charges $100 in bitcoins to unlock infected devices. Since version 7, Android has provided protection against screen lockout attacks, but only if the users have set a password to lock their device screens to begin with. Domain Tools researchers have reversed engineered the ransomware and plan to release a decryption key that will unlock phones for free. Domain Tools didn't say how many devices had been infected. Then it goes on to talk about yet a different scam. It says, people pushing phishing scams are also capitalizing on the pandemic. One batch of emails sent to college students posed as an, inv- as an official communications from the university personnel offering bogus updates about closures and other coronavirus-related news. A variation of this type of email purports to come from employers and targets people who are working from home. In reality, both scams provide links to fake OneDrive or Office 365 login screens that capture user credentials. Yet another phishing scam appears to come from the World Health Organization. According to researchers from security firm Kaspersky Lab, the emails promise information on safety measures to avoid infection. Recipients who click on an embedded link visit a site that prompts them to share personal information. The scam looks more realistic than previous coronavirus phishing campaigns Kaspersky Lab has found. The firm found other scams that claim to offer face masks and include malware attachments. Nation states are also milking the coronavirus scare. According to security firm FireEye, hackers working for the governments of China, Russia, and North Korea are also using virus-related content to conduct espionage operations. Researchers from Sophos, meanwhile, have identified dozens of malicious websites with domains that reference COVID or COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus. Online scams that are tailored to major news events have been around for more than a decade. Normally, however, they tend to morph relatively quickly from one breaking event to another. With the coronavirus commanding an almost unprecedented amount of coverage around the world, these latest campaigns have been nothing short of a flurry of attacks that show no signs of slowing down. Readers should be highly skeptical of emails and websites that purport purport to provide information or goods related to the ongoing pandemic. The key fact to confirm is the primary source of those communications. Readers should never take source claims at face value. One of the most reliable sources for legitimate coronavirus-related information is this page from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And then, and then actually it goes on. But So the point here, obviously, is that you know, whenever there's a big crisis like this, whenever there's something really big and scary going on in the world, these bad guys are going to use your fear against you to try to trick you into giving them money, giving them credentials, uh, giving away information that lets them uh, attack you in some other way, and ultimately usually make money. So here's one more I wanna talk about, which is just horrible. And so this is a, an article from Naked Security, which is the Sophos blog. And it's titled, Dirty little secret extortion emails threatens to give your family coronavirus. And let me just read this article. Cybercriminals really do know no limits. Remember sextortion, where they say they'll spam your friends and family with X-rated photos of you that they got via malware? At least, they will, unless you pay them $2,000. Well, Sophos Security Team just sent us a fish email they received that shows the stakes just got a lot higher and way more offensive. Now, the price is $4,000, and if you don't pay, then they're threatening to infect your family with coronavirus. As crazy as that sounds, the crooks are making that threat because they want you to believe... That they really do have deep, dark insights into everything you do, because they're deep inside your computer and your digital life, and because they can track you and your family, family everywhere. So, and then they actually show a, a screenshot of what this email looks like, and um, you know, there's some redacted things in here or whatever, because this was actually sent to a person. But here's here's what this email looks like. The title is subject, and it has your name, and then it has your password, and it goes on to say, "I know every dirty little secret about your life." To prove my point, tell me, does this ring any bell to you? And and uh, this part is redacted, but it's, it's the password. And it goes on. It says, it was one of your passwords. What do I know about you? To start with, I know all of your passwords. I'm aware of your whereabouts, what you eat, with whom you talk, every little thing you do in a day. What am I capable of doing? If I want, I could even infect your whole family with coronavirus. Reveal all your secrets. There are countless things I can do. What should you do? You need to pay me $4,000. You'll make the payment via Bitcoin to the below mentioned address. And if you don't know how to do this, just search how to buy Bitcoin on Google. And then it gives his uh, his, his Bitcoin wallet address and it goes on. It says, you have 24 hours to make the payment. I have a unique pixel within this email message. And right now I know that you have read this email. If I do not get the payment, I will infect every member of your family with coronavirus. No matter how smart you are, believe me. If I want to affect you, I can. I will also go ahead and reveal your secrets. I will completely ruin your life. Nonetheless, if I do get paid, I will erase every little information I have about you immediately. You will never hear from me again. It's a non-negotiable offer, so don't waste my time and yours by replying to this email. Now, if you got that email, and if they had correctly put one of your old passwords in that email, you would probably be scared but let me, let me finish the article and then we'll talk about it. As we've seen so often in sextortion emails, the proof that they really can see deep into your online life is a password that very likely is one you used to have, but they've extracted it from publicly available data leaked in an old data breach. So even though it might've been a secret once, it hasn't been for years. What do you do? One, don't send any money. It's all a pack of lies 2 don't be scared. In scams like these, the crooks don't have any data on you, let alone details about all your family members and where they live. Three, don't think of replying. It's tempting to contact the crooks just in case, but they have nothing to sell. You have nothing to buy. And by contacting them, you are just giving them another chance to scare you into making a mistake. And four, let people know about this scam. Make sure others don't fall for this horrible scam either. Let's face it, we already have enough to worry about at the moment. So that's the end of the article uh and that's that's gonna just be my tip of the week Help your friends and loved ones understand that there are scams about tell them ahead of time because if someone were to get this email and you you know and you hadn't had the chance to warn them you know they may feel that they've got 24 hours to comply uh and who knows when the email is sent you know maybe they get it the next day uh, and they will feel rushed and scared and they may just do this so it's important to understand that that the with the way a lot of these Emails work and sextortion ones were like the first one, and now it's basically being done uh, with the virus. Is they find some little bit of information about you that probably came from a data breach that makes it look like they have some keen insight, some backdoor access to you and your information, when in reality, they don't. This is an automated email. They went through and found, like if you ever, if I've told you about the site many times before, Troy Hunt's wonderful site called haveibeenpwned.com. He has collected there, you know, a lot of the breached password databases and particularly the ones that have been cracked where the passwords have been cracked. And you can go to that site and put in your email address or one of your many email addresses. And it will tell you if that email address has been associated with a breach and whether or not the password associated with that email address has been cracked. And what these bad guys are doing is they're taking all that information from old data breaches for passwords that have been cracked uh, and sending them out to the email addresses associated with those passwords and saying things like this, like, hey, recognize this password? Yeah, I know about it, which means I also know about all this other stuff, but they don't. So anyway, fair warning, that's your tip of the week. Not only be be aware of this yourself, please spread the word to others because in times like this with, you know, the the scarier it is, uh, the more it's, you know, it's trying to be, it's trying to be exploited by the bad guys, and this is obviously a particularly heinous attempt, just horrific way to try to get people to pay them money and exploit this whole virus scare. The other thing I would say is there's also a lot of disinformation being spread, and a lot of it's with good intentions. Um, I've seen some emails, you know, or posts from Facebook and, and the like, purporting to have some very strange cures or tests for the virus, like you know, if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds or. Uh, or if you can't hold your breath for 10 seconds, then you're infected. Or if you can, then you're fine. You know, things like this. And, you know, these emails purport to be coming from that, that particular one was from Stanford hospital. It was not, you know, and a lot of it's either completely wrong or misguided or half true. Uh, and that doesn't help anybody. So first of all, if somebody posts an article like that, Fact check it. And the easiest way to fact check a lot of these things uh, is a, a website called Snopes.com. dot com. They've been around a long time. They've been doing a really good job of debunking. It, used to, it started out by, you know, debunking urban myths and urban legends, um, but has since, in the you know, in the age of the modern Internet, come come to be a great tool for exposing hoaxes and they really do their research. So it's not just, you're not just gonna go there and say, hey, is this Stanford hospital thing about coronavirus real? Uh, Nope, it's not. No, they actually go through and explain like where each of these things has come, where they believe each of these things came from, why it's wrong. You know, here's the site where you can go that shows it's wrong. Here's what you should be doing instead. I mean, they do a lot of great research. So uh, if you ever receive something like this, certainly fact check it before you forward it on And in general, as we're going through this together, go to scientific, well-established, high-reputation resources for your information. That would be the Centers of Disease Control, the CDC, uh, WHO, the World Health Organization, you know, places like that. Uh, I don't care where else it comes from. I don't care if it comes from a loved one, somebody you know and trust. It could be somebody who has a PhD and something else. You know, it may purport to be from you know, somebody that seems reasonable, but you don't know that that's really where it came from. And a lot of cases, you know, disinformation can be very harmful. So the, the key things that, you know, that these websites are saying, if you, if you haven't gotten this drilled into your head enough already, first of all, stay home as much as, as possible, Uh, or I guess more properly stay away from people. You can still take walks. You can still go to the park. As long as you're separated from people, you know, it's good to still get out, but avoid contact with other people. And, you know, just by default, stay home, uh, stay off the road, stay out of uh, any place where other people are congregating. It flattens the curve. And if you haven't heard that term yet, the idea there being, it slows, you know, it slows the spread of the virus. And the point is to spread out the uh, and contain the virus, not completely, but, you know, to keep it from overwhelming our healthcare facilities. Because if everyone just went about their daily business and this virus spread like it can, there would be a massive, massive exponential spike in sick people that would completely overwhelm our healthcare services and people that could have been treated by being in the ICU and getting a ventilator will be sitting in a tent hospital or worse yet, sitting <laughs> sitting on the curb, not being able to get that and will you know, not get treated. And a lot of people may die that wouldn't have needed to die. But again, like every other information you hear, make sure you get it from the straight from the horse's mouth. Don't just trust me. Don't trust anybody. Uh, go to the CDC. Go to the WHO. Go to these websites that are at the forefront of this, who are backed by scientists, who are telling you the right things to do. All right. That was a long one. I know I had a lot of stuff to go through and a lot of very important stuff to go through today. Again, please spread the word. Make sure your friends and uh, family, loved ones know that there are these scams out there, know that there's different disinformation going around, tell them where to find the right information and encourage everybody that can just to stay home, particularly the elderly coming up next week. I've got a wonderful interview to go to the brighter side and get back to a happy face. Um, her name is Dr. Ann Kavukian, and she is quite literally a world renowned privacy expert. Her work has been the basis for a lot of privacy legislation around the planet, including the GDPR. She was the original crusader and, uh, I would say a privacy goddess and I've been trying to get her on the show for a very long time. And lucky enough that actually, I think the virus had something to do with it because she's normally having speaking engagements all around the planet at at big cities. And those have all been canceled. So I I think that may have opened up her schedule. So whatever the reason I was really glad to get her on the show and it's a great interview uh, and it will be next week. Uh, Two more things real quick. Uh, A press my publisher is having a sale of 40% off all eBooks uh, that would include mine. It's the cheapest I've ever seen my book uh, in digital format. That's like 18 bucks, I think, after discount. Uh, and there's lots of other great books there too. So um, if you go to apress.com, you'll see the sale and it ends March 25th. So uh, you might want to check that out soon. And finally, the, uh, the, the the United States tax filing deadline, if you haven't heard, has been postponed to July 15th. So that gives everybody a little more time to file their taxes. Uh, and when you do, and you probably qualify for the for the free tax file, Uh, make sure that you get the real and for real government sponsored or government backed free file tax program, uh, which unfortunately has been obfuscated and hidden by TurboTax and a lot of other companies. They try to route you to their other programs they say are free that invariably upsell you to ones that are not. So just go to the irs.gov page. Uh, You can also go to my blog and search on um, free file and you'll find an article that has all the links you need to find the actual real and for true free filing tax systems and programs online. All right everybody, that's going to do it for this week. And uh, I mean this with even more gusto than I normally would than I normally do. Stay safe out there everybody. Stay home and we'll all get through this together. And until next week, don't get caught with the drawbridge down.